Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 390 and my guest is Dr. Christina Marinakis. Christina is a world-renowned jury selection specialist. She's worked on many high-profile cases, including the Vanessa Bryant one and George Floyd, we all know about. Her degrees are in law and psychology. She's brilliant. And she's brought on for both prosecution and defense cases to consult for witness prep and to help those who will take the stand with communication training, that kind of thing. If you've ever wondered how juries are selected or as Christina would put it, deselected. Now's your chance to learn all about it. I found it really interesting, super fascinating stuff. All right, check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my music albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Be well, be kind, be love, and here we go. Christina Maranakis, welcome to Hey Human. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, I was introduced to you through mutual friends, and so I'm really excited just to jump right in. I like to start these by asking people where they came from, their upbringing. I think uh, I am a good mix of my parents, but mostly my father. Um, if if it's genetics, it's 99. I always joke it's 99% my dad and 1% my mom in terms of my personality and how I approach things, but. Growing up in a two-parent household, very fortunate. A father is an engineer from Greece who emigrated, I think, in his late teens. And mother is from West Virginia, very caring. So he's an analytical engineer. My mom is a caring. She was a nurse. And um, they're still married. In fact, I think their, their 42nd anniversary was yesterday. So very fortunate to grow up in that household. Had two siblings and... I was always the analytical one, but I was also the one that would stop the fights or, you know, when if my parents were fighting, I would step in and, and say, you know, can't we all get along? Basically, I wanted to go to family therapy when I was younger to try to get my, so that my parents would get along with my sister. And I just really did not like that kind of conflict and um, was always just a reasoned thinker. A little bit weird as a child, actually, while other kids would want to play outside and play make pretend, you know, make believe and pretend, I would rather stay in and, and talk with the adults. And I would just sit there and listen to the adult conversations rather than playing outside with the kids, like doing logic games and puzzles. Even during recess in elementary school, I would stay inside and help the teacher grade papers or plan for the lessons rather than playing outside. So I've just always been a thinker rather than a feeler. And I think that has shaped me. And I think that's more just my personality of my father. My father's exactly the same way. Very analytical. Um, not, I have a very hard time watching movies, suspending disbelief, things like that. So I'm just a, a logical thinker is how I could explain it. And, and literal thinker sounds like. Yes, very, yes, very much so. Where are you in the birth order? I'm, I am the youngest, bi biologically the youngest. And then when I went away to college, my parents took over to um, raise my sister's child. So 
He has been there since the day he was born. So he's almost like a little brother uh, and is still with them today. But I grew up being the youngest. I was going to say anyone that is the one that runs around trying to stop the fights is generally the youngest child. Yeah, you know, they say like there's like the middle child syndrome too, but I have always, like the younger one is supposed to be the wild one. Uh, in traditional psychology, that's the birth order is that the young one is the free spirit. And that has been the absolute op opposite where I've been the structured one and the, the oldest one has been the wild one. Oh, isn't it? I'm the youngest in my family as well. And I was always the one trying to, you know, get everybody mm -hmm. happy and the peacemaker. But from a different perspective, the empathic side, not the analytical mm -hmm. side. Yeah. Right. Mine was just very reason. I can recall one time my sister was always fighting with my parents. Uh, she still is to this day. <laughs> I remember one time she was saying, like, you can't tell me what to do. It's a free country. And I must have been younger than 10. And I said something like, it's actually not a free country um, completely. Like you can't yell fire in a theater. There's restrictions on free speech. And um, and then I'm saying things like, well, you do live under their roof and they pay the mortgage and they buy your food. So you really do have to follow their rules. I was such a reasoned, logical thinker, even as a young child. I joke that I've actually never been in a fight with my parents ever. Um, the one time I did something that was I snuck out of the house in the middle of the night to go see my gay best friend, uh, which my parents didn't know he was gay at the time. So they, to them, they thought, oh, she was sneaking out to go into some boy's house. But I snuck out. And when I came home, and I got caught. I understood. I said, you know what? This was absolutely dangerous. You didn't know where I was. If something had happened to me, this is the days before cell phones. You never would have been able to get a hold of me. No, you wouldn't have known. That was very unsafe of me. I think a fair punishment is no car for a month. And I can't see my friends for a month. I think that would be a reasoned punishment for this. And my parents are like, okay, sounds good. I was just like the most logical person as a young kid. It was very weird. It reminds me a little bit of young Sheldon. If you've watched that show, I think I'm a little bit on the spectrum then in that way, or at least yeah. I used to be. I've learned to grow out of it and to be more social. But as a child, I was very weird. Would you say then that you've learned mirroring, m more mirroring? Yeah, I don't yes, think you grow I out of it. I think you just adjust to the world around you. Exactly. As I started to go get into my teens, I started hanging out with a friend who was very outgoing and she loved to hug everybody. And I had never, I didn't even hug my parents. Um, and we, it, I just was like, but I saw other people are hugging. So I'm okay. I guess that's what I have to do to get along and, and talk more. And she really helped me come out of my shell in that manner, but it is in a way, not my true self. I still don't like hugging. I'll do it. Uh, but to me, I think it's weird of people just putting your chest against someone else's chest that you don't know is weird or your colleague's chest. That's weird logically. But, uh, but I see what other people are doing and I'm able to emulate that to get, yeah. to, to get by. Yeah. How did you develop an interest in what you do now? Well, I think it does go back to my childhood really, because like I said, my, my family fought a lot. I don't know how they're still married, but they're still married. And I always wanted to keep the peace. And so I wanted to go to family therapy. And while I was in family therapy, I took the therapist card and I held on to it. But then I also, so I, I was a little bit, and I don't want to say empathic, but I just, I like the idea of let's just sit down and talk it out instead of screaming and people being unreasonable. Can't we just sit down and be reasonable about it? And so I find that aspect of the family therapy to be enlightening of like, okay, let's, why do you feel that way? Let's explain it so that the other person can understand and you can think logically about the situation. And so I started to get into like psychology and I thought that was really fascinating of how perspective and how you could have two people that go through a fight 
And at the end of that fight, they each have a memory of what happened and neither one have an accurate memory. And I don't think they're lying. I don't think they're making it up, but it's perception. And if you've ever been in a fight with a spouse or something, or you, know, you, you do, you walk away with a different perception. You say, well, you said this and this. If I didn't say that. What I actually said was this and this and this. And what, what the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. And so your memory is shaped by your perception. And that perception is going to be shaped by previous experiences. So I think about, you know, my mom was married before. She was in sort of a relationship that was somewhat abusive. So I think that she brought that mentality. And so every interaction with my dad would have this sort of slant with it. And then my dad grew up in a, in a very, very strict, very strict Greek, you know, household where the, his mother wasn't even allowed to leave the house without her husband or speak to anybody without her husband present and, uh, and grew up in that very strict environment. So I think he came at it from a different of the male pride and honor. And that you, there was just this clash there between them, but they, neither of them had a good recollection of what happened in the arguments. And I would notice that. And so I liked going to therapy to actually talk through what actually happened in that fight and, and what led to it and the differences in perception. But at the same time, I was also this really logical thinker and I would want to have the explanation for anything that happened. So if my parents said, "What well, you can't do this, why? Uh, you know, I was never satisfied with because I said so. That's not a good reason. Tell me why. Because it's unsafe. Uh, because it's it's going to build bad habits. Whatever it is, it's going to hurt damage the furniture. You know, there's a risk. I, I can understand that. I, so I want to know the why. But then I also would try to explain my, my reasoning behind things. So I remember in fifth grade, I got a B. It was my first B ever. And I didn't think I deserved the B because I did very well in the, in the class, but I got marked down for class participation that I didn't participate enough in class. So I, I went to the teacher and explained that I didn't need to participate in class and ask questions because I already knew the answers. I didn't have any questions to ask and it, therefore it was unfair to mark me down 10, 10 percentage points for not participating because I had a hundred percent on all my tests. And the teacher said, take it up with the principal. So I went to the principal and the principal made the teacher change my grade to an A. And so I was sort of known as the, the kid that, that argued her way to be valedictorian because that was the only B I ever had in my entire lifetime that I argued into an A. Um, and so I always wanted to sit down and explain. And if my parents said no, another time I wanted to go to Penn State, I really wanted to go to Penn State, but I had a full ride to any Maryland school I wanted to go to because I was high school valedictorian. But I wanted to go to Penn State for cheerleading. My parents, I had to sit down and explain to them, I've done everything you've asked me to. I've gotten straight A's. I did all the sports. I just, please let me go here. I will pay you back for the college tuition. I don't need a car. And, and I explained why I felt like I deserved to go. And they eventually said, okay, you, you know, you have, you, you've done everything we asked, we'll let you go. So I think this goes back to this. I've always wanted to, this idea of let's all get along in psychology, but then I also ar sort of argued my way, but in a logical way. So people would say, you should go into law school. You should be a lawyer. But at the time I was really fascinated by psychology. I took AP psychology in high school. And so I, I wanted to go on the psychology track, but I also was an overachiever. So I thought I'm going to go to med school. <laughs> and so I went into school with a uh, pre-med into, into undergrad and um, quickly switched my major to bioscience psychology, thinking that I wanted to do psychiatry. So I could still go to med school, but I could focus on psychology by going the psychiatry path. And that's what my undergraduate major was, but I still teetered with the law school thing. And it was a, a recurring theme where people said, you should go to law school because I would was very convincing and always got my way because I could argue it very logically and persuasively. And then, I, and then I took a class in rhetoric and I realized I could do that for either side in like a debate, a debate class where I could debate either side issue and I would always win every debate and in a logical way. 
So I was really just debating between law school and psychology, but I ended up deciding, I went to an advisor who said there was a school in Philadelphia where you could do your PsyD, which is a doctorate in psychology. So it's not medical school or psychiatry, but close enough, doctorate in psychology, and go to law school at the same time at night. And it was a unique program, one of the only like it in the country where there's, I think at the time there was two programs like that in the country. And this program, unfortunately, no longer exists, but because it wasn't a set program, it was, you, you could go get your site, your PsyD during the day. And then the school also had a law school that had evening division so that people that worked during the day could get, go to law school at night. But then there was just a few crazy people that wanted to do both at the same time. So there was, I think, three people in my class that did both. And, um, and that sort of has gotten me where I am today, but I had not remembered that this, but when I graduated from the joint degree program, my mom found a collage I had made in third grade. Um, you know, what, who are you? What do you like? Sort of thing where you would cut out pictures or magazines and you would make this collage. And in that collage was the card from the psychologist's office and a legal card. And it had a legal scale because I either wanted to be a lawyer or a psychologist in third grade. And so now, so, and now I'm both. Essentially. That's incredible. Yeah. It's, I don't know anyone in the, knew in third grade what they wanted to be unless it was a ballerina or an astronaut, but, and also what nerd wants to be a lawyer or a psychologist in the third grade, but, but that's me and I did it. Wow. And when you came out of school and you were ready to put up your shingle, as they say, where were you being directed? Did you have a choice or do they, is it like um, med school where you get placed in fellowships and things and move your way up through there? Yes. There's very, very, they call it practicum and internships that you have to do as part of your doctoral training. And, but you get to select where you go or you could apply to various ones and get accepted. And I actually went in the track of forensic psychology and working in prisons. So while I was in school, my internships were at a, a juvenile detention center, child custody evaluations for parents who are about to lose their termination of their rights to, to their children and supervised child custody visits. I did that one year. And then I went and worked in a psychiatric prison where um, the patients who are in that prison were people in the state of Delaware. They have three things. You could be not guilty, you could be guilty, or you could be guilty but mentally ill. So you may, may, some of you may be familiar with um, you know, not, not guilty by reason of insanity. That's a plea in certain jurisdictions. But in Delaware, they have a, so something in between where it's guilty but mentally ill, where instead of being sentenced to a regular prison, you're sentenced to a psychiatric prison where you're getting treatment every day. And so that's where I was working at the psychiatric prison. And then I also did um, for a year evaluations to, to stand trial for competency. So if somebody is mentally ill, there are requirements to stand trial. You have to be able to uh, appreciate your attorney, that your attorney is there to help you. You have to appreciate your right to testify or not. There's certain rights that you have to understand to even go to trial. If you're not competent to even stand trial, you have to go into a mental facility until your competency is restored. So one of my jobs was to restore the competency of people who were found not competent. So they would be getting treated with medications to treat their, usually with schizophrenia, um, some manic depressive or bipolar, but usually schizophrenia. So they're on medications to treat them. And then I would teach them about the legal system to try to get them to prepare for their own trial. This is your lawyer. He is here to help you. She is here to help you. Anything you tell your lawyer, they can't tell anybody. They can't tell the judge. 
they're on your side and trying to teach them that. And so one of the things we did as part of that class was watch the movie, My Cousin Vinny. And so you'd have a, a room full of psychiatric patients watching My Cousin Vinny. And I would stop it right here and be like, see, the lawyer is on your side. See, the lawyer is going to help you in your case and trying to teach them, okay, here's the courtroom. Here's what you can wear. And here's what you shouldn't wear a suit like this, you know, like the character wears. And so um, it was a fun, I've seen the, that movie probably a hundred times because I taught that class every, the class would go every, I think, six weeks that we would teach it. So I did that for quite a time. And then when you graduate, you have the option of, do I want to go in this path of forensic psychology like I am doing or try something else um, and that combines the two degrees? And one of the things that, that we had an advisor that would say, what could you do with these two degrees? You could be a prison psychologist. You could go work as, in politics and do and, you know lobbying, or you could be something called a jury consultant. And at the time, jury consultants weren't necessarily looked down, looked upon very favorably and, and we could talk why in a minute, but the idea is that the jury consultant can select a jury that's going to be more favorable for their case. And popular feeling is that, you know, the jury's supposed to be fair and impartial. So why should you be trying to get it to be slanted in favor or not? But in the end, both sides are trying to do the same thing. So you end up getting a fair and impartial jury. The whole legal system is adversarial. But at the time, my advisor did not want me to go into the jury consulting because it was looked down upon as, as manipulating the system, as big corporations can afford these consultants and the little people can't. So it skews the justice system and it's not right. But I still found it to be fascinating. And I saw they, they make a lot more money than people who work for the government in the prison system. And the prison system was very discouraging because you'd, you'd have somebody and they're not, they're, they get better. They stop taking their meds. They're not better. And you had a lot of suicides in the prison. You had a lot of attacks on staff. There's a lot of turnover and, um, and it doesn't pay that great. And it's the same thing day in, day in, day out, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And the jury consulting just seemed more like blitz and glamour, working on high profile cases. And, um, and I watched that movie, Runaway Jury which is the, the one that is about a jury consultant, the Gene Hackman character. And I thought that looks really cool. And it, it brings psychology in it, but in a way that, um, like I said, I'm not very empathic. So I didn't like doing the group therapy and I didn't like actually treating the patients. I liked analyzing the patients and, and diagnosing, but I did not enjoy sitting there like, tell me about your father. And I'm not much of a great listener in that way. And I didn't see a lot of people getting better. So jury consulting was great because you don't have to treat anybody. And uh, it's really just analyzing people. And it's also very competitive, which I've always been very competitive because there's a winner. And, and not only is a winner, you, you win big. It's almost, if you like gambling, it, it gives you that same feel when a verdict comes in. It's like when you win, it is the highest high you will ever experience. And when you lose, it's, it's the lowest of lows, um, especially in criminal case. Mm -hmm. Do they attribute the wins to the people that help select the jury then? Is that go hand in hand? Do you get to bask in some of that glory? Behind the scenes, most lawyers don't want the public or their clients sometimes to know that they have a jury consultant behind them, or they don't want them to know the extent of what we're doing. There's, there's For some clients, I basically am a speech writer and I will draft their entire opening statement or closing argument, like a speech and, and to, for them to deliver. And then you hear, they get this, they're quoted in the newspaper about their amazing closing arguments at this amazing moments. And little do they know it was written by somebody else behind the scenes that nobody knows that like lawyers actually have speech writers. They do jury consultants, but not all of us do that, but that is one thing that I do. 
so you get the client will always reach out to you and say thank you your your help is invaluable but you you usually won't see my name in the newspaper they don't want the public to know that the jury consultant was behind it um especially if it just especially in the past because it was it was viewed as manipulating the jury system but i think that view has changed now that people understand both sides have jury consultants plaintiff sides have it prosecutors have them i've, I've done both sides I've done criminal cases for defendants and for the prosecution. I've done civil sides for both. And it, it really, in the end, you have just like a, a, a real system, you've got two lawyers that are fighting it out. That's the best way to get to the truth. Because if you have one person that is deciding the facts, bias will influence it. Whatever One person is going to have bias one way or the other. You can't get rid of it. That's why we have 12 jurors. The idea that, that there's enough mix in there that the bias is not going to affect it. But the idea of getting to the truth is if you have two lawyers on each side arguing and trying to poke holes in each other's case, that's the best way to figure out the truth. It's adversarial system. That's the whole system is based on that. And so by having jury consultants on each side, that's the whole point. Like I'm trying to manipulate the jury to be more favorable to my client, but the other side is doing the exact same thing. Now, if I'm better at it than they are, you know, that's on them. But uh, in the end, the idea is that you get the most fair and impartial jury if you've got two sides that are trying to get the bias, you know, seek out the bias that's against their client and get the jury more in their favor. I would imagine if somebody just before we've started this conversation, if somebody just said to me, oh, the person that is the jury selector, what do you think that their personality is like? The first thing that would pop into my head would be empathic. So it's interesting to me that you don't incorporate that with how you do it. And then I think just sitting here listening to you speak, there must be something about having such an ability to um, not get emotional where you see past because everybody wears a mask that you can see past that facade that is the emotional facade that, that we all wear on the outside and then get behind and see what's actually being said is it is it more like that where you see almost um you know numbers going across your field of vision <laughs> i am very perceptive and the more you do it, the better you get at it because you start to hear the same person over and over again. And I said, you hear a juror's talk and it's, I've heard that juror talk before. I've heard people use those phrases and I know how they decide cases. I can give you a few, few examples. So I do a lot of cases where the plaintiffs are alleging that their cancer was caused by a product or a chemical. And there is a, people ask me like, do we, if, if someone has a, a juror has had cancer, are they good for us or bad for us? It depends on the language they use. So someone that says, I had cancer is different than someone who says, I'm a cancer survivor. It's their perception. And the person that views themselves as a cancer survivor usually views themselves as a victim to some degree and that they view that their ability to beat it had to do with them being so strong. So they're more emotional about it. Whereas the other side, it's like, I had cancer. Cancer happens. It's genetic, random genetic mutation errors that happen. It. I got through it. I got treated. And you know, thankfully I'm, I'm doing okay now. And now I've moved all of my life. Whereas other people are like I'm a cancer survivor and now I run races and I still wear my, my, you know, ribbon around my bracelet. And they're, they're just two different people yet. They had the same somewhat similar experience. And so that's the perception piece that, that, that is so important. Uh, listen, other words that people use, they, instead of saying, they'll say uh, minorities versus people of color. And depending on the words that they use gives you some insight into how they view those issues. And so if it's a, a case about race and I'm on the defense side, I'm usually not looking for someone who says people of color or they'll say or like in, indigenous people, because those tend to be people who are more liberal leaning and, and more progressive. And we don't want that if we're on the defense side, whereas 
on the flip side, if I am looking for those types of folks, we're, so you're, you're just listening for that little clues that gives you, they're clues into the person's values, into their background, into their experiences, and also into, this goes back to what I was talking about, perception. Because that's what my job is really all about. Just like when you're watching a fight and each person walks away with a different perception, a trial is very similar. You have 12 jurors who view the same information at the same exact time and yet will come away with different perceptions about what happened. They will remember different things. Uh, they will, uh, this one is they even will come up with new evidence. They fill in the gaps. We all do this with our own lives too. They will fill in the gaps with their own experiences and they will envision or remember evidence that actually didn't happen um, because it fits their worldview of what they think happened in the case. And so if you could, I say that jurors are, they view the facts through a lens and that lens has been shaped by their entire life experiences. And some of those jurors are going to be looking through it through a concave lens and others are going to be looking through it through a convex lens. And that's why you end up getting this jury that they get into the room and they, they think that everybody's going to agree with them and they find out that they don't. And like, how could you not feel that way? We all saw the same thing, but they all heard something different. They remembered something different. We hear jurors that say, he was telling the truth. Oh, he was so honest. And other jurors say, oh, I don't believe him or anything. And yet they saw the same thing. It's all about perception. So my job is to go in there during jury selection. And if I can figure out what the lens is that someone has, I can usually predict how they're going to vote at the end of the case before they've heard any of the evidence. And the more questions we get to ask in jury selection, the better I can do it. California has very, very uh, liberal voir dire, they call it. It's this, the process of selecting a jury can last several days. I can usually predict 11 out of 12 jurors which way they're going to vote before they even hear the case. In Baltimore, they don't get jury selection less, lasts about maybe three hours. We only get to ask maybe 10 questions. I have a much harder time predicting things in Baltimore. I can probably predict maybe eight out of 12 jurors, which way they're going to vote. The more I can assess the person, get to hear them talk, ask questions about their, their experiences and their attitudes. And then we also look at their social media, their LinkedIn and, and things that they're posting online to try to figure out what is that lens. That's my whole job is figuring out the lens. So fascinating. Do the prosecution and the defense have to agree upon the selected juror or do you each get assigned, uh, assigned six and six? So it's actually not jury selection. That's sort of a, a misnomer. It's actually jury deselection. Uh, most people, I don't think, realize that you aren't selected for a jury. You're just not selected to get kicked off. And there's three ways you can, I don't know, three ways you can get off a jury. People always say, how, how do I get off jury duty? Well, I'll tell you that there's three ways. Um, the first way is called hardship. And this is determined by the judge. So if a trial is going to last three weeks and you're not going to get paid, you're self-employed, and the judge is going to say, who here, it's impossible, it would be a fi significant financial hardship. If you raise your hand, you say, I, I don't get paid and I would lose my house if I served in this jury, you will be dismissed by the judge for hardship. The parties usually don't get any say in that. We might be able to question you things and say, well, would you be able, do you have any savings in your account that you might be able to support? We can ask questions like that and follow up, but usually it's the judge that determines, do you get excused for hardship? Hardship could also be of no childcare, things like that. So that's way number one you get off. The second way is if you, um, each state has a different rule, but essentially the same is if you can't be fair and impartial. So the other part of my job is to get the jurors that I don't like to say and admit that they can't be fair and impartial and to get the jurors that I do like to say that they can be fair and impartial. And that's what jury selection is all about. And you'll hear it if you sit during a jury selection, you're going to hear one side is going to be like, 
So given that experience, do you think you might have difficulty being fair to my client? And then the other side's going to ask you questions. Yeah, but you're a, you're a smart person. I'm sure you could set that opinion. That has nothing to do with this case, right? Your experience with your mom is totally different from the cancer in this case. Do you think you could just set that aside and be fair and impartial? And then the other side is going to say, yeah, but it sounds like it really hits close to home to you. So do you think that might influence your judgment and you really couldn't be fair and impartial? And they're going to go back and forth asking you these questions. And as a juror, you're like, what are they doing? Well, that's, the t that's what they're doing. If you can say, if I can get you to say, you can't be fair and impartial, you are automatically off the jury. And, but if I, the other side can get you to come back and say, I can set that aside, I can follow the judge's instructions and I can give the parties a fair shot, you're, you're, not, out, you're out, not out yet anyway. Um, so that's called a four cause challenge. If I can get you to say, or the other side can get either jury to say you can't be fair, you're off for cause. People joke with me, they say, I'm just going to go into jury selection and tell everybody I'm racist and I'm going to get out. I'm like, that doesn't work because most cases are about have nothing to do with the race and it's like company versus company, you're still going to be on the jury. But the real ticket is if you say you can't be fair and impartial, um, I'm not telling you to do that to get out of jury duty because you're going to be under oath. We also have a, a saying in, in our business that if you talk, you walk, you got nothing to say, you're going to stay. And that's because the more you talk, the more likely one side's going to get rid of you. The people who say nothing are the people that stick around. So that brings me to my third way of getting off the jury. So once the hardships are gone, they're excused. The people who say they can't be fair, they're excused. Now, it may not happen in the courtroom, so you don't really know that you're excused. But it, in our list that we have, we know that you're excused. And then each side gets to get rid of a certain number of jurors for any reason at all, without even having to say what the reason is. And it's a different, the number varies by jurisdiction. So in California, it's six per side in a civil case. In um, Baltimore, it's four per side in a civil case. So it just depends on the state, but it's a certain number. It's called a peremptory strike. And so I will get to say, so say there's four jurors that we don't like. And they said they could be fair and impartial, so I'm stuck with them. Well, I can use one of my peremptory strikes to get rid of that person without even explaining why. And so they're deselected. And then there's a random list that is generated by the court, by a computer system, that lists the jurors in order. So we're deselecting the people. The other side is deselecting their people. And the first 12 that are left, that's your jury. So if you are on a jury, you weren't chosen to be there. Just nobody kicked you off. It's so fascinating to me. So, so fascinating. I've been called to jury duty twice. Once I had, uh, I was out of the country, so I couldn't do it. And the other time was I do work for myself. And I said, ah, this is just no way I can take this kind of time. And so they dismissed me. But I was slightly bummed about it because I've always wanted to experience that experience. But the timing is not great. Right. And that's the case for most people that they, they would like to do it, but it's just, it's such an interruption to people's lives. And I do encourage people to do it though, because if you're that defendant or you're the plaintiff or whoever, if you're a party in a case, you want a jury that's going to be representative. You don't want a jury of all unemployed people or all retired people. That is not going to be good for anybody. We need to have diversity in the juries. And there are studies actually show the more diverse the jury is, the better, the, the more accurate they are because they will challenge each other's opinions and they don't have what's called groupthink error. If people are very similar, they tend to agree with one another and have bias can judge them. You want diversity. And if we don't have that and people aren't serving, the justice system collapses. So if you can, if you can manage it, I really encourage you. I, one of the things we do is we interview the jurors after the fact. And that's another way I start to learn. I listen to people and I talk and like, I know that's a plaintiff juror, or friendly juror. Or I know that's a defendant friendly juror based on having done 
thousands of interviews with jurors after the trials. And every interview I have, I've every juror has said, I didn't want to do this, but I'm glad I did. It was such an interesting experience. It was, a, it was an inconvenient in my life, but it was really interesting. And I, they all say that afterwards. So I encourage everyone to, to serve if you can. Absolutely. I think it would be incredibly fascinating. I'm surprised that it does not pay better. Right. Well, the court system is run by the state, so they don't have the state is already strapped for cash. Um, of course. And so it, it varies by state up to $40 a day at most. Um, some are only $8 a day. The idea, though, is that most employers will pay for jury duty. If you work for a large company, even some small companies will and you're salaried, you're going to be paid for jury duty. And the, the idea is that all companies benefit from this system because all companies get sued at one point or another. And so all companies should be able to sacrifice their employees for a week or two and pay them while they're on jury duty. You have been involved with some pretty big cases. I know you can't talk about a lot of things, but is there some cases you can talk about to describe how you went about deselecting? Yeah. So, um, right. So we have client confidentiality for most cases and the clients, uh, especially some of the bigger companies that we work for don't really don't want the public to know that they work with jury consultants. Um, and so I think that view is changing, but most of the companies don't. And a lot of companies have serial litigation. You know, they have a thousand cases about a particular product. And so they certainly don't want that getting out there that there's a jury consultant because I think the future jurors could feel like, oh, I'm being watched or manipulated or something. So, but there are one-off cases where the client doesn't care, right? Once they win, they don't care. So one of those cases would be for Vanessa Bryant, for example. Um, Vanessa Bryant brought claims against the County of Los Angeles for um, taking and distributing photographs of the remains of her husband and daughter. And, and there was other plaintiffs as well um, who filed suit for the similar thing, violation of privacy rights. But that's a, that's a one-off case. And so Vanessa gave me permission to talk about that case and, and how we went about selecting the jury and, and how we developed the themes in that case and how that was an example of one of the opening statements that I helped to craft that opening statement and come up with the catchphrases um, that we use with the jury. So that was one particular case. Um, other, other cases that we do pro bono, where we're not, which means I'm not getting paid for it. I'm just doing it out, you know, somewhat out of the goodness of my heart, but also just also for FaceTime and having the experience of doing something like that. And, and that one of those cases would have been the George Floyd case, where the, the prosecutor, the state of Minnesota, um, asked us to do that work and asked if we would do it pro bono. And that was one where we, we agreed to do that pro bono. And so we have permission to talk about our involvement in the, the George Floyd uh, trial against Derek Chauvin. When you have cases like that, where they are so celebrity or so in the zeitgeist or the public eye, I imagine that makes your job that much more complicated. How do you adjust for things like that? You would think that, but when there's a high profile case, it actually makes my job easier because people have opinions about it already. And I can learn those opinions more easily when we say you've heard about this in the news. I can already hear how they feel about the case before we've even heard the evidence. Whereas if it's a case they don't know about, I'm trying to decipher are they going to be good or bad for us based on proxy issues uh, and how they feel about other things. Whereas when it's a high profile matter, I can usually learn pretty quickly how they feel about the issues. And that usually shapes how they're going to feel um, throughout the case. In the George Floyd case specifically, it was quite easy to figure out if jurors were going to be good or bad for us because of social media and the pandemic. 
everybody was online in May 2020 because they had nothing better to do. And a lot of people were commenting, Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, uh, the looting and the rioting. Everybody had an opinion. So we could go back on people's social media and see what they were posting around that time and figure out if they were going to be good or bad for us based on that. So that was actually one of the more easy jury selections in terms of me trying to predict. Uh, we were able to predict, I think, quite, quite easily um, which jurors were going to be good or bad for us in that case. And the real ticket in that case was trying to get the jurors that we wanted to, to say they could set their feelings aside and be fair. Because so many people had made their minds up that what had happened was horrible. And these, I was for the prosecution, so we wanted those jurors. And, and so we really had to convince the juror that you really don't know the whole story. You only saw a small video clip of what happened. Can you just keep an open mind and wait till you hear the evidence? Because you don't know what happened before the knee went on the neck or after, really, right? You don't know. And so can you just keep an open mind? Now, we knew those jurors were going to be great for us because they were just disgusted by what happened. But we had to get them to be convinced that they could keep an open mind and, um, and, and, and be a fair jury. Now, I'm not saying that that jury was skewed because the other side, remember, was doing the same thing. So there was jurors who felt like uh, Mr. Floyd had drugs in his system and there were other excuses for what happened. And if he could breathe then, or if he could speak, he obviously could breathe. So people would say those things. And the other side was trying to convince those jurors that they could be fair to keep them. So in the end, it, it's yes, there's skill involved in which I guess whichever side did the better job um, at that is, prevails. And there's many, many other factors beyond just jury selection, right? There's the evidence, there's the testimony, um, there's a lot of other things. So I can't say that we won or, or didn't or lost on jury selection, but it certainly is a huge component. Because as I said, you can have 12 people hear the same evidence at the same time and come to different conclusions. And so getting the right jury is the, is the first step to having a good plain position when you go into trial. And when you're brought on, do you it sounds like I'm going to answer my own question because you said you help write the statements, but do you sit through the entirety of the trial? In some cases, yes, but most people know because it's very expensive. You know, lawyers are expensive. Jury consultants are also expensive to, to lay people. So you don't really need someone there every day unless, I mean, if it's a make or break case for it, like you're going to lose the company, right? Or go out of business that they might spend the money for that. But usually they get the most bang for their buck out of the jury selection. And then I go on. And the other thing, I'm just so busy. I, I probably do two jury selections a week. Uh, I'm usually scheduled for about four a week. And then they schedule, they, they, some of them settle or they move, but I, I couldn't block off a whole month. I'd lose clients that way. So usually we're not there every day. What, what happens, and this is a little bit more than probably people realize either is that even before we go to trial, we do focus groups. We do um, focus groups. We do mock trials. In, in the George Floyd case specifically, we did a focus group where we brought people in and we talked about the issues. And then we did a mock trial where we brought people in and had them hear the testimony. And we use that in two ways. Well, we use that in many ways, but two main ways. One of the, the goals of doing these focus groups is to find out how jurors view things to test the case and then and how can we make our case stronger and to help us come up with what's called themes or catchphrases. So I'll give you an example from that case. When we were doing the focus group in that case, there we you know we were trying to get a, a murder conviction, not or, you know manslaughter, more than just involuntary manslaughter. We wanted second degree. Um, and so when we were doing the focus group, jurors weren't willing to go there. And uh, they were saying, what was the motive? 
You need, if you want to get, you know, secondary murder, we, there needs to be a motive there. And they didn't know each other. Why would some cop want to, you know, to kill somebody or what, what was the motive? And one of the focus group participants said pride that Derek Chauvin was too proud when he was there to have these low lives, um, you know, inner city people, people of color telling him what to do. And so when they were saying, get your knee off his neck, get off of it. He was like, no, I'm not going to have you tell me what to do. So his motive wasn't necessarily that he wanted to hurt George Floyd. His motive was he just too proud to do what was right. And so the other focus group participants were like, okay, I can see that. That's his motive. So we came up with the theme, the catchphrase, pride over policing. And that's another thing I do. I come up with catchphrases and slogans and alliterative slogans are, you know, you've heard if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. That's a theme. Um, so pride over policing was one of the themes in our case. And we said that in the opening statements, pride, it was pride over policing. It was said again in closing arguments. It was said during the testimony. It was said so much that it was one of the like trending hashtags on Twitter was hashtag pride over policing. So that's when I know my themes work when people start repeating them in the, in the um, and you see it in the newspaper. That, that We do focus groups to come up with those things and help us get a better case. In the Vanessa Bryant case, it was culture of callousness. We had to prove that it was not just one or two rogue police officers who did wrong. That's not good enough under the law. The claim you have to show that there was a pattern, practice, or procedure of the police department. Pattern, practice, or procedure so we, we came up with the theme of culture of callousness, and, um, and that was our theme in that case. So we do focus groups to help us come up with the words that jurors are using in their own language, a pe local people language, as opposed to in lawyer language. So that's one reason. The other thing we do with focus groups and mock trials, and this is going to really blow your mind, um, is before the people show up, they fill out a questionnaire that is, at least at my firm, it's over 250 questions about themselves. And then they do the mock trial. We bring in about 40 people, um, anywhere between 30 and 40 people to hear this mini mock trial. Last, usually lasts about a day. Sometimes they last two or three days. And they get to hear from the plaintiff side and they get to hear from the defense side. And you know, usually it's put on by one side and then we're just pretending to be the other side. And then we have them listen to the testimony. They deliberate. And at the end of the day, I'm looking at who are the people who voted for my client and who are the people who voted against in doing this for 20 years, I've never had all people go one way or the other. It's usually about 50-50 or 40-60, sometimes 70-30 in a certain case. We run a statistical modeling analysis on that background questionnaire so I can figure out statistically what are those questions that predicted who was going to vote one way or the other. So, for example, if 18 out of 20 people who, who are Democrat voted for my client, I want Democrats in my case, right? 18 out of 20, that's really strong predictive power. In the George Floyd case, what we found out that 100% of the people who felt like the, the fear of COVID was overblown and the government had gone too far when it was approaching on civil liberties by, by requiring vaccinations and mask mandates, 100% of them voted against us. So that was when I went into jury selection, jurors had an option of wearing a mask or taking the mask off when they got behind the plexiglass. Jurors who the judge said you could take off your mask Oh, they would rip it off and take this huge sign. But thank God, I would be like immediately, I do not want that juror. That is one of the number one jurors I'm going to strike. In that case, each side got to strike. Defendants got to strike 15. Prosecutors got to strike nine jurors. I got to get rid of nine jurors for any reason I wanted to. That was one of the reasons. If they ripped off their mask, we struck them. So it was 100% correlation. Usually it's not that strong. Usually it's something like 
you know, 15 out of the 25 females voted for us. Okay, then we want females. So you're looking at trends in the data. And remember, we did this for 250 questions. So it's demographics, experiences, and attitudes. And so from that, I can develop what are the top 25 predictive factors so that when I go into jury selection and we only get to ask so many questions, I can now identify the top most predictive questions to figure out who's good for us and who's bad for us. So that's why we do these mock trials is to develop a statistical profiling model that we can then use when we go in and pick the actual jury. And listening to all of this, all I can think of is we are just mice hitting the button to get our pellet. <laughs> that's all we are. Uh-huh. It can sound that way in the way I describe it. I assure you that it is, uh, like I said, the other side is doing the same thing. And in the end, you're going to hear the evidence. And you're, you're, I hope that the jury is going to make their decision based on the evidence. But the truth of the matter is, is that perception is reality. And so learning the perception of the jurors is going to have a huge outcome on the case, if not more than the, the, the evidence. Now, keep in mind, though, cases that go to trial are never a slam dunk. If a case is clear cut, it's not going to trial. They're going to settle it or, um, or you know, the defendant's going to plead guilty. It's the cases where it's gray and where the evidence is murky. And that's where perception has the biggest influence when you have murky evidence on what happened. Because if it's obviously you have a smoking gun video of the guy shooting the person, I don't care what perception you're going to have, you're going to vote the person guilty, right? But when you've got, okay, there's a gun, but the person wasn't there, their DNA was found on the scene, but not on the gun, and you start to get the, the evidence is a lot murkier, um, that's when perception starts to have a bigger influence. And the ones that go to trial are those really close cases that um, in the end, the perception sort of does influence the outcome. As someone who is able to... I. I'm not sure, obviously, how old you are. It doesn't matter and how long you've been doing this. But I imagine over time, you start to see, really see people, really see them. And I'm curious if you've had an experience where you participated in it and the person who, let's let's just say a murderer or a person who is allegedly a murderer goes to trial, they get not guilty verdict but you know, you know that they're guilty. Has that ever happened to you before where it goes the opposite way of what you know in your heart, but it is what it is? I have never taken a case that I didn't personally believe in. And I can explain it in two ways. There are some cases where the client, and I do more civil than criminal actually, but so I'll give a civil example and a, and a criminal example. In a civil case, the client did wrong. They messed up. And they cause a lot of people to die. Um, I'm thinking about automotive defect case that I was involved in. But the problem was, is other people were suing that were not injured by that product defect. So I had one of the cases where a a woman fell asleep at the wheel and and crashed. And then we had a Facebook post where she said, she was a night nurse. I stayed, oops, I fell asleep at the wheel and crashed. But then she's suing the automotive manufacturer saying it was the defect. Aha. And so I felt like, Yes, my client screwed up, but they paid the people who deserve to be paid. And now you have all these other people coming out of the woodwork wanting to get their paycheck when that's not what caused their accident. Another case against the same manufacturer, the guy had blew up. It was a 0.23 and he totaled the car completely drunk. And he said, ah, it was the automotive defect. Come on. So I, I believe in the case, even if the client has done something wrong in a civil case. In a criminal case, you also have to remember that a person is 
I did a case where a woman that she, her DNA was found on the victim's body. Her, um, she was paid a million dollars prior to the, the death. And it was the death was the girlfriend of her boss. And her DNA was found on the victim's throat, on the victim's cell phone, which the cell phone had dialed 911 and then hung up. And her DNA was found on the knob of the stove, which was left on sitting next to a candle. All right. So she, the case was brought against her as she was being a hit. She was a hit woman, essentially. She was paid a million dollars to kill this woman who had broken up with her boss. It seemed like it was a slam dunk. In fact, I was a very young, inexperienced consultant. And my boss gave me the case because she thought it was such a loser that it would be a good one for me to cut my teeth on. It was fairly high profile. It was actually a model that was killed in, in uh, Santa Monica. But my boss was had another case to work on and she was involved, but it was sort of like, this is a loser and uh, do the best that you can. Here you go. And we came up, I helped write with the opening statement and we was there for jury selection. And we ended up getting a juror. We asked these jurors different questions about what TV shows they watched. And I was looking for a contrarian. And a contrarian is someone who will argue with the other side, no matter what the other side is. It's someone who just likes, like professors are great contrarians. They're the person that is always like, yeah, but you didn't think about this. So what do you think about this? Uh, when they're jurors, it'll be like, they always want to know why. You know, why are we still sitting here? They'll say to the judge or like, you know, they'll be on their phone. They're just not respectful of the system. So we want contrarians because I knew I wanted someone that was really going to challenge the evidence. And in that case, though, there is a there is something known as DNA transfer. And if you, for example, your DNA is on the table and I take a towel and I wipe the table, I can now have your DNA on the towel. If I use that same towel to wipe something else, I can transfer your DNA. That, that's an actual thing, DNA transfer. And so the, the my client had used the towel of the boyfriend um, because she she was his she worked for him and they did real estate and she'd use that towel and so our theory of the case was the killer the real killer used the towel to clean up the crime scene and so he spread her dna all over the place because she had used that towel previously and that's why her dna was over so it's is it a kind of a far-fetched maybe but um it can happen and so after that case we got a full acquittal of those charges and found completely not guilty and people asked like do you think she really did it what do you really think? And my answer to that is it doesn't matter whether I think she really did it. What matters is, did was it proven beyond a reasonable doubt? Because I don't want to live in a world where I think you did it is enough to put somebody in jail for the rest of their life. So it's irrelevant whether I think she did it. In my heart, I don't think it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I We have doubts because of the existence of DNA transfer, because they knew each, they had seen each other before. There was doubts in my mind and it was therefore not proven. So I felt comfortable going into that case and representing her because I don't think it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And how awful would it be if she was innocent and she went to prison for the rest of her life based on, I think she probably did it. Which happens a lot. A lot of people go to prison for that. Uh, it reminds me of this the case that Serial did. Mm -hmm. uh, after listening to that entire thing, I was speaking with my friends, and you know, they, we were half and half. Half the people said, for sure, he did it, for sure. And I just kept thinking there wasn't enough evidence. They didn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof of the fact that it was not beyond a reasonable doubt is the fact that that show Serial could be that show Serial. And show all those different things. Um, so that, that's a really interesting. Right. But you're seeing that even in your own that different people are hearing the same thing. And yet, right. Some people are like, he definitely did it. And other people are like, no, it's oh, absolutely. all your perceptions. It's going to have to do with your political leaning, how you grew up, what you were exposed to. Every little experience that you've had has shaped you in a way that makes you see it 
a different way. Maybe you've seen discrimination. And so that has shaped how you view what happened to him in that case. Um, or maybe you're the victim of a crime. And so you view it differently, but it all, it all shapes that. And so that's really what jury selection is all about. Well, and that's the absolute of every existing person on the planet and every conversation that we have with each other. We will never truly understand another person because all we have is our own experience to go by. So you can't be in that other person. You haven't lived their life. And so that makes complete sense that everyone is going to see or feel or think something completely different. So I always say it'd be so great if we all had a little stenographer trailing after us to take right. down the notes of what we say. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. My, I, I almost always put things in writing. They're like, why don't you pick up the phone and call? And I say, because I want a written record. I want to have a written record of what was said because inevitably when there's a phone call, people don't remember it exactly the same way. And they'll say, I asked you to do this. And they'll like, say, no, you didn't. So I also like to text. I don't, I like to text more than I like to have phone calls. I know people want to have this interaction and they say, pick up the phone sometimes. It'll do, do you good. Uh, but I, I do like to have that written record because I know that the perceptions are going to change what was said. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes here, it says, and I don't know who this person is, Jerry Blackwell? Yes, so Jerry Blackwell was the prosecutor, the lead prosecutor in the George Floyd matter. And that's how I got involved, actually. So Jerry Blackwell, prior to that case, I don't think he had ever done a criminal case before. He is a civil lawyer, and he had done um, defense of companies, big, usually big corporations and product liability cases. But he was local to Minnesota, very well respected, and one of the best orators I've, I've ever seen. He could tell a story and captivate an audience. And he's African-American, but he appeals to all audiences. He appeals to the African-American community. He's very grandfatherly. He's sort of Morgan Freeman-ish. You know, he really appeals to Everybody, nobody like does dislikes Morgan Freeman, right? Well, nobody dislikes Jerry Blackwell. Um, so he's he, he's an incredible trial lawyer. And so he was asked by the Attorney General of Minnesota to join the case as a special prosecutor. I mean, he's actually not a prosecutor. He was just prosecuting that particular case. He, along with Steve Schlisher, who is also a um, private sector lawyer who does mostly white collar, um, were asked to be special prosecutors in that case and to do that work pro bono to assist the normal, you know, the, the normal state's attorneys that, that were there. Um, so the state's attorneys were involved and the prosecutors were involved, but they didn't have, they, they're, they're not have the trial experience that these guys did. Um, and most people, once they, they get a big name for themselves and they win a lot of cases, they go private because there's more money in it. So they asked him to do it. And I had worked previously with, with Jerry Blackwell on civil litigations for a large um, company up in Minnesota uh, fairly successfully. And he'd worked with our firm for years, decades, actually, with our firm. And so he sa said, well, you know, I'll do it, but can we bring along our jury consultants? And I think that the attorney general basically said, sure, if they'll do it pro bono. Um, yeah, absolutely. Bring over whoever you want. And so that's how I, we got involved in the case. And my firm was, we, we have different specialties in the firm at the time that I was with at the time, um, which was called Litigation Insights. And some of us were really good at witness prep and preparing witnesses. Some were really good at that research and statistical modeling. And then there was me and I was sort of the guru at jury selection. And I had, I don't think I, I had barely lost any cases, really. I'm, very, very few cases have I lost as a, as a jury consultant. And I have, an un, I think, uncanny ability to be able to predict which way people are going to vote. And also very organized and some other things that just made jury selection be my specialty. So the firm, um, she, the, the owner, the head CEO of that firm, she had the closest relationship with Jerry Blackwell. But she's like, Christina's your gal. She is, she's the best jury selection specialist that I, that I know of. So she's your gal for this case. And so that's how I got involved 
in doing that that jury selection with him. And it was an amazing experience. Um, jury Blackwell has gone on now to be um, nominated to the bench as a federal judge. He's no longer working, but he's uh, in the best position and the most fair person I know to be in that position. And I'm very, very grateful he brought us on for that case. What's what's your future look like? Do you plan on doing this forever? Do you have other aspirations? Because of the high-profile nature of some of these cases and the George Floyd cases specifically, I started to do more and more um, TV programs, podcasts, and commentary on news networks. And I really enjoyed that. It's something, it's fun. It's it's easy to, I can do it from my own home or from studios in Los Angeles and not have to travel. The the job that we do seems very glamorous because it's high profile. You're staying usually with very high end law firms. So you're staying at the Ritz Carlton quite frequently. It's like boohoo. You're traveling and staying for a month at the Ritz Carlton. But it's also very draining to travel to, I mean, I spent 200 nights in hotels. And while we get paid very well, you miss birthdays, you miss funerals. My my grandmother right now is in hospice and I'm not able to see her because I had jury selections all this week. And you miss out on everything. The Super Bowl. I want to have a Super Bowl party. I can't. I got to travel to Miami for a jury selection next day. You miss. So I see attorneys talking to their kids, taking them trick or treating through their cell phones. I mean, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into this work. And so, yes, we get paid well, but man, we sacrifice a lot. And that's a hard life. So I would like to step back a little bit from the travel piece of it and only do certain cases. But um, I mentioned Litigation Insights. During the pandemic, we sold the company. I was a part owner of Litigation Insights, a minority shareholder. We sold to another company. And then when my contract with that company expired, I started my own. And so I started my own company um, in August 1st of 2023 in uh, collaboration with another existing company that does courtroom graphics. So if you ever see there's PowerPoint slides that help for the opening statement, those are done by graphics companies. And so there was a graphics company that I kept running into and my clients would say, James and his company at Immersion are the best graphics folks that I've ever worked with. And my company at the time had a graphics division and I would try to sell it because I would get commissions. I would use our graphics people. And my clients would say, sorry, I really love James and Immersion. He's the best. Um, You're the best at jury selection, Christina, and uh, but James is the best at graphics. And so James and I kept meeting over and over again with the different clients, same clients. They'd be like, oh, we're using Immersion. We're using Immersion. And he would say, oh, we're using Christina and her company. And so we sat down and we're like, hey, you know, my contract expires in two years. Let's keep in touch. And we did uh, intentionally and we just kept seeing each other. And so when that contract expired, it made perfect sense to go into business with him. Immersion is the parent company. And then my company is Immersion Legal Jury, which I own with James. We started this company together uh, to start sort of an extra leg. And what I've really enjoyed and the reason I bring this up is because now I have the opportunity to pass this on to somebody else. And we have, we're actually quite close. Not that different in age, um, but in terms of experience, the folks in my firm are, are relatively young and experience-wise, and and relatively young age-wise as well. But um, they are eager, and they want clients, and they love the work, and they're excited, and they um, are innovative. And I I see the opportunity now to you know I've made my clients. I have more clients than I could have right now. I, I triple book myself. I have to turn down work. I want other folks now to experience that same thing. I love speaking at conferences. That's actually probably my favorite thing is to get up in a room full of like 400 people and and do a speaking gig. It's almost motivational speaking to some degree. It's a little bit of stand up in some, some degree as well. I love to see, I have two employees now who are at a conference right um, today. And presented, and I just got emails that came in that said they they killed it. They were amazing. There was all this buzz talking about how awesome they did, and I'm like this proud mom 
over here. I don't have children. I travel too much to have children. I don't have pets. I travel too much. I don't even have plants. I travel too much, but I have employees now and I am beaming with pride um, with how well these employees have done. And when I get feedback from clients and I feel like that's, you say, what's my next step? That's my next step is my legacy is to have somebody else experience the success in their career based on my guidance and mentorship and, and to, to watch them become superstars of their own. I love that. And honestly, you're so great at, at explaining all of this. I feel like you'd make an exceptional professor. I wouldn't mind doing that. You know, I never, when I was doing grad school, I never did teaching assistant because I had, um, we had internship instead. Teaching would be great. I actually do teach. The University of Maryland has a trial advocacy course where students can learn trial techniques in each class is a different phase of the trial. And a judge, a federal judge, Judge Mark Colson, teaches that course. And he has asked me every year to come in and be the guest lecturer to teach the section on jury selection and developing trial themes. So I do one class a year for the University of Maryland. And it's one of my favorite, I sell it's my favorite speech I do every year because it's with students and they love it. Um, I'm afraid now that I said that, maybe I'm going to get more professors reaching out. It's really fun. I would love to do that if it paid the bills or if I have, with the company, uh, going and hopefully running, I'll be able to do more of those things because I'll be able to supplement that income with the income that is coming in through our employees. I feel like you'd be excellent at it. You'd be one of those professors where everyone was super excited to go to class. It, yeah. yeah. When after I speak, I always am inundated with emails of people that say, that was fascinating. How do I get into this? And so many people want to get into it. And I always bring them back to, but you're never going to see your children. Uh, you're never going to have a relationship that's healthy. Um, but it's, it's rewarding. It, trust me, it's, it, but it's for a special person. You have to be a special person. Um, I'm very, very competitive. And, um, and I really love what I do. If you don't, you're never going to make it in this business um, with the, the amount of travel. And and the, the other thing I try to explain to folks too, it sounds very glamorous, but most trial lawyers go to trial once a year, if that, maybe, maybe really busy trial lawyers will do three or four a year, maybe. And so for that three weeks that they're in trial, it is intense, man. They are up all night. They, they sleep two hours a night. They're working all weekends. There's, you know, all that stuff at, lead up to trial, right? But they only do that a couple of times a year. And then they go vacation in Europe and the rest of the year, they work like a normal job. And so I'm in that environment every single day. So I get emails day and night that are like, we need this tomorrow. I need this right now. It is constantly fire, 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 fire. I have never not worked a weekend. I work anywhere between 80 and 130 hours a week. Um, sometimes I don't sleep for probably do like four or five all-nighters a month. It is very intense and you have to be ready to drop everything in a dime because the clients like that's their, like this is the moment their client has been building for, for years. Some of these cases, it's their like go time. And I just happen to be in a profession where it's go time all the time. Wow. <laughs> it's very draining. It's, it's cool and it's exciting, but man, it's sometimes you're like, can I just like, go to dinner for once? Or like, and that's why it's very hard to maintain relationships. You're, you're working all the time and your phone is out all the time. You're having to leave in the middle of dinner. Oh, I, sorry, I got to go home and do this. It's it's rewarding and awesome, but it takes it takes a lot of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Do you have to drink decaf? <laughs> I uh, oh gosh, one thing you'd be so this is sort of when we're in trial, they set up what's called a war room, and you they wipe they get a hotel floor and they wipe out the entire floor furniture, and every they take all the beds out and they make offices, and then they have these two rooms that are full of nothing but snacks. And everything you would ever want, you just, and if they don't have what you want, you just write it down on a board and they go out and get it. 
And so it's like being in a grocery store, you can pick whatever you want all the time. So if you don't gain like 30 pounds every trial, I don't know how you're doing it um, because it's like two freezers full of ice cream and it's, it's wild. And then there's another whole room that's just nothing but supplies. So it's like deodorant and you know, cough medicine. It's like a CVS that you have. It's built in a hotel that anyone that they're at trial can grab at any time. The decaf. No, usually you're on caffeine and I'm, I will have like seven diet Cokes in an all nighter just to stay up. It's terrible for you. My doctor is like, you're going to kill yourself. And I'm like, yeah, but we got to win. You know, um, it's, it's, it is very, very intense. <laughs> just how you talk and your excitement and your, uh, and your passion and in your, uh, competitiveness. That oh yes. Super type a type. Get them. I had something that, I mean, this is ever since I was a very, very little girl. If I said I was going to do something, I will do it. Um, I will, where there's a will, there's a way. That's one of my mottos. And, um, and I really, if I want something that will make it happen and we'll troubleshoot around it. I've always been that way and very much competitive. I did competitive cheerleading. I did competitive uh, softball and, and I certainly school was competitive everything I did. And it's not just because I like to win. I also just, I like the game of it. I'm I'm a pretty good loser, actually. Surprisingly, when I lose it, I can look back and say, here's what I did wrong. Or sometimes it's the chips fall where they may. Sometimes the cases, it's like the evidence is what the evidence is. I can't help the fact that you had this email where you said something stupid. Uh, We do the best that we can with what we have. That's one thing people say, have you ever lost big before? I've lost big. I mean, I've lost $400 million cases, but we say, if you're not losing big cases, it's because you're not good enough to be hired for those cases in the first place, right? If you have the toughest cases in the world, you're not going to go out and hire uh, somebody who's who's, who's at, you know, average. You're going to hire the best of the best of the best and hope you can win. So I find it flattering when someone comes in and says, we've got this real doozy of a case. Uh, can you help us? That, that means I mean, you must think I'm pretty good, uh, but you're going to get dinged every once in a while. It's going to happen at some point. It's my understanding you're the best in the world at this. That's what I've been told. <laughs> uh, that's what I won't say that I'm the best in the world. I would say the clients have said that to me. Several clients will say you're the best in the business. Um, uh, today, actually, just the, just this morning, I had this lawyer who is who he is probably the best known as the most. I mean, he's one litigator of the year nationally, multiple years. He's the head of a big prominent law firm here in Los Angeles, where just to get in the law firm, you have to go to Ivy League law a law school, Ivy League, Harvard, Yale, I and mean, everybody that works there is a brilliant. And they do, they probably charge the most per hour. If I told you, you'd be disgusted how much they charge per hour, uh, more than several thousand dollars. And um, they're doing the most high profile cases. So he is, he is the epitome of the best lawyer in the country. And just this morning, he, he sent, we did a mock trial yesterday and he sent at the bottom, it said, by the way, or B, you know, BTW, um, you're really great at what you do, period. And He's a man of few words, but coming from him, that was just so flattering. And he does, I mean, if I name all the cases that he's done, you'd be like, wow, he's done some really big cases for celebrities. And that's really awesome to hear. So I won't say that I'm the best in the business. I mean, there's, there's other people there that are very good, but we, we get really good feedback. Um, and we've had really good success. It's absolutely fascinating. I, so, I know how valuable your time is. I really appreciate the fact that you came on the show to talk about this. It's just so interesting. Well, if you can't tell, this is super fun. Uh, every time I present, I get thanked. I'm like, you don't, I should be thinking of you because I love talking about this stuff. I could go for hours talking about this stuff and it's the coolest thing. And so any chance I have to talk about it, I will. I have one question about everyday life and that the thing that you said at the beginning where we're, and I'm a big believer in this, words matter. 
and how you hear how people talk or what turn of phrase they use or what word they choose, that that tells you so much. So for the everyday person moving through their life and meeting people and having relationships, family, friends, lovers, whatever, what is something besides that to look for that you have found in all these over all the course of all these cases that are how to read another person? I actually would say don't overemphasize body language. There is a, people think, well, if they're, if they're doing this, they think this way. If their arms are crossed, they don't like me. And that's actually a misunderstanding is body language is actually very unpredictive, surprisingly. Um, people could be cold. They could have a big belly and like to rest their arms. And so you don't want to watch someone's body language just in a, in a vacuum, but what is their body language with you versus other people? And so if I'm watching jurors, I'm looking at body language. It's, I don't care if their arms are crossed or not, but I care if, if their arms are crossed all the time when my side is going, but not when the other side is going. So you're looking at changes more than uh, the actual body language of themselves. So if you think that someone doesn't like me because they don't make good eye contact, well, watch them. Do they make eye contact with other people? Um, or are they just somebody who has a hard time making eye contact? Um, jurors are actually very bad judges of credibility because the signs of dishonesty and the signs of nervousness they think of the same thing. So when people are nervous, they don't make eye contact. They stutter. They look up and to the right. They play with their, their, their hand or their hair. And then jurors will say, oh, they're not being honest because they didn't make good eye contact. They were looking up to the right. They were fidgeting and swiveling their chair. Um, so I, it's, it's a shame that signs of nervousness are usually misconstrued that way. But if I had to give advice outside of jury selection, actually, to the general public, if you're taking anything away, is think about perspective, right? So when you think that someone has a negative intention, you think something negative, like that jerk, right? That pulled in front of me. What was their perspective? Maybe that person that jerked that pulled in front of you is not from this town, doesn't know where it is. They're with the GPS, it's malfunctioning. Maybe they just dropped their phone. Like there's, think about what the circumstances is. Um, in psychology, we call it the fundal, fundamental attribution error. We as humans tend to attribute things to people's inside, their personality, when 99% of the time, it's because of the situation. When people snap back at us, if you're in the grocery store and someone's being rude to you, it's not that they're a rude person. Usually something happened that caused that day is causing them to do that. So just before you try to make snap judgments about people, think about what have they been through? What are they experiencing? What might have happened today that is making them react that way? And I, I, you'll have much less conflict in your life if you approach things that way. Oh, that's such good advice. You're cool. You're a fascinating human. <laughs> it's really, I just, I'm loving this conversation. Tell people how they might find you if they need you for, or are you at such a level that people can't just be like, I want that person to help me. <laughs> so I do often, every time I do something on TV, I get, I get emails from prisoners who are like, can you help me? We only have so many pro bono hours that we can do each year, but, um, I'm, I'm usually happy to talk with people, especially people that are interested in getting in the business uh, and they're serious about getting in the business. You have to have a master's or a doctorate in psychology or a law degree. Usually people want a combination of both. So if you're really serious about getting into the industry, I'm happy to talk with people. Uh, the, my company is Immersion Legal and um, and I have, I'm very, I have, I think the only person that has my name, there was another Christina Marinakis, but she got married. And then there was another Christina something or other who married a Marinakis, but I think I'm the only Christina Marinakis who was born this way. And I'm actually extremely easy to find because of that. So it's, it's pretty easy to just Google me, but Immersion Legal is the, is the company if you're interested in learning more and reaching out that way and happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. That's really, we post a lot there. 
Christina, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you having me, really, truly. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.